save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both professional and personal. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger, and I'm very proud to announce that this is the 10th episode of What to Say When Things Get Tough. We made it to double digits. And today we're joined by Dr. Alan Snyder, who's a physical therapist in New York City. We talk about difficult communications in a medical setting, especially in a specialty like physical therapy, in which much of the improvement and recovery depends on the patient's own hard work. I even managed to tease out a little free medical advice from Dr. Snyder, but I think that advice is broad enough that it applies to anyone who's experiencing aches and pains and really anybody who needs to see a doctor. Finally, in order for my joke near the end of the episode to make any sense to you, you need to know that Dr. Snyder lives and works on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and he was wearing a Los Angeles Dodgers shirt during the interview. Please enjoy part two of A Spoonful of Sugar. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Alan. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Thank you so much for having me, Leonard. I really appreciate it. I am a clinical doctor of physical therapy, so born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Did all my schooling there, an undergraduate degree at the University of Maryland in exercise science. Got my doctorate in physical therapy at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. I moved to New York. I've been a doctor now for about 12 years. I've worked in a hospital. I've worked in inpatient on the weekends. I work at my own outpatient facility right now where I just run my own small one-on-one practice. You know, I don't know how I ended up doing what I'm doing, but I love people. I love helping people. I love making a difference in the world and my personality suits it well because being a physical therapist, you get to have more freedom than being, you know, a kind of a stodgy medical doctor. Most of my patients, fortunately, are not like on the brink of death. It's more they have pain or they had an injury and you can get them back to 110%. I don't say 100% because most people aren't running at 100%, but I want to get them back to the best they possibly can be. So that's why I do what I do. Was there anything in particular that drew you towards physical therapy? I was always good at school. I didn't know what I was going to end up doing Um, But then when I got to Maryland, I was kind of figuring things out and just taking classes because your first year and a half of undergrad, they just make you take core curriculum. So you take a little bit of everything and you try to find your niche. Now, I started taking classes inside of the Health and Human Performance Building at the University of Maryland in College Park. So the Terps, I know you're familiar with. Children are Terps. Oh, cool. Yeah, I graduated in 05. My freshman year was the national championship in basketball. So that was my claim to fame. I did not play on any of those teams, but I was there to cheer them on. So I started taking classes in the building and, you know, you see these big medical posters, you know, that people present at conferences and exercise and diabetes, exercise and osteoporosis, exercise and heart disease. And you start reading that, wow, exercise is a really good thing. I, it's so amazing. The 
positive effects that one can have from being healthy and taking care of yourself. And I was drawn to it. And so I start taking more biomechanics classes and exercise physiology and motor control and motor development. And I'm not even so sure what I can do with that. But I found that it was my first year at Maryland, I struggled because I was taking classes I didn't love. And now I'm taking 18, 19 credits, which is you know more than what you have to. I'm getting a 4.0 because I enjoyed learning about the body. More specifically, I like knowing how things fail. It kind of sounds weird. You know, they have whole podcasts that are how things work. I like knowing what breaks down and why that happens. And, you know, you see a football player get tackled and their knee, they come up lame, their knees hurting. Now, was it an ACL injury, a bone break, a torn tendon? You don't know. But when you can figure out the mechanics of the injury, you can then fix what's going on. And so I just started kept taking the classes. And one of the main things that my major does is going to physical therapy. Before you can apply to PT school, they make you do 100 hours of volunteer service so you can get a taste for it to see if it's for you. And I got into that clinic and you can't do anything. You clean the tables, you fold towels, but you get to interact with patients. And you know, I loved it. I, I thought I wanted to be an athletic trainer and help the Baltimore Orioles and the Ravens and all this stuff. And I then got so much satisfaction from watching somebody who couldn't walk because they had a knee replacement, a hip replacement to getting back to living their lives again. And that feeling is like nothing other. And I want to be the best clinician I can be and maybe it's selfish, but for me, I get so much joy out of helping other people. That's my motivation. And they love it because they get the best service. But I just, it's like that, that high from taking somebody who is scared to leave their home to going back to living their lives is so empowering and it's so beautiful. And in the pay it forward mindset, and 2020 has been a year. If we all were a little more kind and we all were trying to help other people, this world would be such a better place. Yeah, you've said it well the topic of conversation during difficult situations, professional and personal, is rooted in a science that's called risk communication. And it's designed to look at the most difficult communication that human beings engage in across the spectrum, again, whether it's personal or professional, and identify ways to make that communication both more effective in the sense that whatever is trying to be communicated is communicated and also to make it as easy as possible for the parties to come to agreement on whatever issue is at hand to try to tone things down lower the temperature a little bit so it's not so angry because I could tell you a lot of stories of situations where there have been physical fights and people just weren't able to communicate and I raise that because interestingly some of the earliest research in the field of risk communication was in the medical field Dr. Vincent Gabello, who is a professor at Columbia University, so not too far away from where you are. Very close. And the, the head of the Center for Risk Communication there, very early on, began to set up uh, recorders in doctor's offices where they were about to share with patients that they had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. As you can imagine, probably about the most difficult conversation you could possibly have with someone. And what he found was that doctors were absolutely terrible at having conversations like that. They beat around the bush. Sometimes they never really came to the point. Oftentimes they used humor as a way of trying to sort of lighten the mood and make everyone a little more comfortable, which of course all that served to do was make the doctor more comfortable and the patient much less so, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in talking to people in the, uh, the medical field. Now, 
a conversation like that between a doctor and patient where terminal disease is involved is just awful. I wanted to use that as a way to lead into a question for you. Do you find yourself in those kinds of conversations at all uh, where perhaps patients don't want to accept a diagnosis or uh, do all of the PT that they're going to have to do in order to get back to where they were or where they'd like to be? Yeah. You know, when it comes to the jokester type of mentality, I'll just be very honest. I am that guy. Keeping in mind, I'm not working with a lot of people that are terminal, but when I do have patients that have more serious issues, you know, I work so close with my patients one-on-one for an hour that you start talking about a lot of different things and it gets very personal and very intimate. And they'll say, I lost my son two years ago. And you know what? The jokes stop. Like I am Mr. Lighten up the mood. Let's make it fun. But sometimes you just need to stop and really humanize people and just say, wow, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that. Like that, that I've lost somebody close to me in my life. And everybody has a lot of different reactions. The best one is usually just to get a little bit more serious. So I totally understand about what you're saying. Like you said, if I was you know, making jokes about anything, I'm sure then the doctor feels comfortable, but the other person is super awkward. Mm-hmm. But in the physical therapy world, you know, when it comes to getting the job done and getting better, I have two types of patients, ones that I need to yell at, not yell at, ones I need to enforce to do more, to do better, and ones I need to tell to do less. I mean, that's a thing is I have people that if I say do three exercises, they do 10 and then they only get worse. So I have to figure out who these people are. And sometimes it takes a couple of visits because if they overdo it, they'll actually do more harm to themselves. Now, when it comes to the patient control or being in charge, you know, I always have a newfound appreciation when I go for a doctor's visit. Maybe it's a dentist, maybe it's a doctor. Being on the other side of the room is so different because you have no control. And especially when you're sick, especially when you have a poor diagnosis or prognosis rather, you have no control over it. And it's so difficult for patients. So I like to have the sympathy for them. But when they have an idea of their plan and I have an idea of my plan, usually we need to meet in the middle. Now, I have patients that come in and they want everything their way all day, every day, this and that. And I will maybe err towards their side and let them see if it works. But if I have somebody who goes, this is what I want. Can you do this? And I say, well, it would be better if we you know, integrate some other things. And they say, no. I, you know what? It's like I'll say, I don't know if this is the right fit for you, Mr. Smith. Like You might want to go somewhere else because I want you to get better. And if you only want this, we might our goals might not align. And I certainly don't want to set them up for failure because I work in healthcare. It's, the clue is in the name, right? Healthcare. It's about caring about people's health. And too much nowadays, it's health make money. And that's why I started my practice because I was working in home care, seeing people in their homes, and then I would refer them to outpatient physical therapy, and then I'd get feedback, and it was never good. And I'm not going to name names or badmouth anybody. And I just thought to myself, I can do a better job than that. And five years later, you know, COVID aside, things are great. I couldn't be busier because when you treat people like, and I do mean this, like they're my family. I worked in a hospital and they started prioritizing patients based on bed numbers, by diagnosis, by doctors. I was like, what about the person? What about what they need? And that was one of my last weekends working at a hospital for nine years because I can't do that. I'd see a patient first thing in the morning who had been vomiting because they had surgery and anesthesia. And I thought that I tried to get them up out of bed and they got lightheaded. And then in the afternoon, they were peacefully resting. And I said, you know what? That guy needs the rest a whole lot more than me checking a box off. 
And my boss chewed me out. I was like, this is not, you know, the four seasons. Your job is to get this person up. I said, what if that was your father? What if that was your uncle? What would you have done? And they go, that's not our job to make. And I said, I don't know if this is my job anymore. I, I just can't treat people like that. And if that's my downfall, I'll take it. When people come to see you, how should they be prepared? And what should they, what should they have prepared before they walk in the door to sit down with you and talk about their condition and what their treatment might be? I mean, as far as when I talk to my people online, usually they've, they know who I am. I, I answer my phone. I've already spoken to them. There's not making a visit with a receptionist. Like I ask them, what is wrong with it? Now, if I have the time, I will say, tell me a little bit about what's going on. And they'll tell me they have a shoulder injury. They have a knee injury. So we have to talk about obviously what they should be wearing. But then when they come in that first visit, I ask them very early into their visit if they've ever had PT before because 80-year-old women on the Upper West Side have never injured themselves sometimes. So it's like, all right, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. If they have had PT before, that's actually worse for me because now they're expecting what they've had in the past. And in a good way, I want to be different than that. Most people don't have a positive experience in physical therapy. So I then have to kind of explain to them. I don't spend a lot of time talking to my patients at the beginning because I used to work in a clinic like that. You came in, you had an evaluation, we talked for an hour. And then afterwards I said, make a three times a week for eight weeks. And they're like, dude, I didn't do anything. I, why am I coming back here? So I will talk to them for about 10 minutes, get a good, unless it's super complicated, but I want to get a good assessment of what they're going through, through the subjective. And then I want to do the objective and the treatment, because that's going to tell me a whole lot more by treatment for my evaluation, not the other way around. So if they can come in with an empty mind, or at least the willing to listen or ask questions. That being said, I get anxious people too. And I had a lady who came in one time and she asked me questions for 40 minutes. And finally I said, all right, I've answered all your questions. Today's not going to count as a visit. Why don't we make an appointment for next Friday or whatever we said? I said, call me if you don't want to keep that. I said, no, I said, call me if you want to keep that appointment. If not, then maybe you'd be better off going somewhere else because eventually you have to give the control over to the clinician once you've built that level of trust. Trust is the most important thing. Well, you've hit on a number of the sort of themes of this podcast, one of them being trust, that one of the key, the most important key to effective communication in a difficult situation is trust, establishing that trust between, between parties. Something else I'll mention real quick, just because you brought it up and I haven't had a ha chance to in this podcast before, but the fact that you will answer your own phone, um, even if it's just to quickly make an appointment, but even sometimes to spend a little time getting to know a patient and what their issue is, that goes towards dedication and commitment, which can be a big part of a trust score. So if I'm the way that a patient may judge you, so if I'm a patient, first of all, I'm probably intimidated. I'm a little scared of what's going on. I, as you point out, I am going to be giving ultimately control over my body to you. You're somebody that I need to trust. And although they might not be angry about things yet or suspicious, uh, they're certainly very worried walking into your office for the first time. So the fact that you answer your own phone and talk to them for a little bit and spend so much time getting to know them and learning what's wrong and maybe even I would assume how, what, how whatever, the, whatever they've done to cause this problem, whether it's, uh, I'm not going to use the right words here, acute or, uh, or over a long period of time, whatever the right, right word to describe Chron that. Chronic. Chronic, thank you. There it is. Um, all that's going to help before you even say a word to them already. Now you've begun to establish trust and credibility with that patient, which is going to make the interaction go so much more smoothly. It's going to make your job 
more enjoyable and it's going to make their visit more enjoyable and everybody's going to just have a much better outcome. I'm curious to know what are some of the common questions you get? Um, you know, oddly enough, I feel like they give me a lot of blind trust and I wish some of them would come in and say like, where did you go to school? What is your training? You know, I get a lot of, have you ever treated this before? And it tends to be like the most mundane injuries. It's, have you ever seen a total knee replacement? And while that's not all that I do, it's 20% of what I do, which is a lot. That's a big part of what we see. PTC, hip replacements, knee replacements, and then everything else. So people kind of, they ask these questions like, have you ever worked with this? And it's like, you know, the, the people who don't know how to ask the right questions. I, whenever people ask me what, cause sometimes I'm not the right fit or maybe it's, Hey, I live in you know California. I need to see a therapist. Who should I see? And what I think they should be asking is, you know, how long the visits are going to be, who I'm going to be working with and how many other people are going to be there. And that is the basis of my treatment. You know, I don't have a big, fancy, sexy office with eight receptionists and all the bells and whistles. I keep it real small, real intimate. And if you truly care about your health care, the answer is you work with a doctor, not an assistant, although there can be good assistants. You want to work with a doctor who has five years of experience. I'll just say, I, didn't, I thought I knew everything when I was first out, but you're just not going to. And you need to make sure that you're in that clinic for at least 45 minutes to an hour. There's other places here where you get a half hour and then it's, oh, you can just do your exercises at home, which most people don't do. They really, really don't. And I tell my patients that you're going to see me twice a week for, for what, two hours total. You're going to see you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you're going to get out of this what you put in. Those are the things that people should know before they go see a physical therapist. Now, have you ever had a difficult situation that rose to the level of uh, a concern that there uh, might come to uh, fisticuffs? I would say, well, one, <laughs> uh, I have never gotten there. Uh, for starters, I've been trading kickboxing for six years, so most people know they don't want to mess with me, so that's pretty good. Plus, they have something wrong, they've come to see you, which means they have an injury or something. Exactly, exactly. And I have all these bats and stuff here anyways, but when it comes to confrontation. Now, what's rule number one about anything in business and healthcare is you never discuss religion or politics. I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. That is the most liberal, next to San Francisco, it's the most liberal democratic place in the world. And personally, I'm like an in the middle guy. I was, I was raised in a family with both Democrat and Republican. People love talking politics. They love it. They love it. They love it. And I'll entertain both sides. I, I really, I'm not that far into it. So I can have a discussion. Religion comes up sometimes too, and it's a very Jewish Orthodox neighborhood, and I happen to be a young Jewish man, and I am in an interfaith relationship, and the closest it's, it's ever got, not the fisticuffs, but I can laugh anything off. I'm the professional. That We talk, we talk, we talk, and I had a lady one time where I finally got to the conversation where I said, you know what? How about we just agree to disagree? And she then says, oh, no. I said, well, we both have different opinions. She says, no, no, no. You have an opinion. I have facts. And I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. Great. Whatever. Usually I have that type of guy. And again, I train, I fight people for fun in a controlled setting. When you have that type of confidence, I've been in one fist fight my whole life. And it was when I was 10. And of course it was stupid then too. I'm just never going to get that heated with somebody. You know, you catch more flies with, with honey than you do with vinegar. And when I've had people get angry and get upset, I apologize. Even, even if it's their fault, clearly, there's no need to yell and scream. And I, 
kindness is everything in my world and being nice to people is so important that I'm going to diffuse the situation as a professional 99 times out of a hundred and probably that last hundred time I'll, you know, fake something else. Right at the top, uh, I mentioned that I had spoken to a patient advocate for the last episode of this podcast. You mentioned that you just recently had somebody bring an advocate in. What's your position on advocates? I think it's really important that you have somebody that is informed and educated. Now, the patient advocate that I am dealing with for a new patient who I've only seen once, there's a lot of reasons. Reason number one is this lady is probably terminal at this point, and it's always good. to I don't think she has anybody else in her life to help her. Now, I think you should definitely have somebody that is informed to help you, somebody that can help direct care. Now, the American public thinks they're smart with healthcare, and people are very educated nowadays, way more than they used to be. That being said, Googling something on WebMD is not going to give you the best information. To have somebody that knows what they're doing, you know, I had another person recently, I've worked with her in the past or something, and she came to see me for a headache. And first visit, I put her on the table, we worked on her actual cervical spine and the muscles, and she left my clinic after an hour feeling 50% better. Turns out she had already spent three months seeing neurologists, three months seeing, uh, getting pain pills and all different stuff. And nobody ever suggested physical therapy. And I find that crazy because head pain, neck pain is so related to posture and muscles. And I consider myself a patient advocate. Now, I don't do that for a living. I'm not a professional in this. But when my friends have a question, they ask me, well, what are your options? It's good to know everything out there. And I have Instagram. I get all the ads for all the little bells and whistles. And I see things on TV and I want to know what's out there. For people that aren't as educated in the medical world, which it's a really high number, it really is, I think it's great that they have somebody that can help them out also because it's just too stressful sometimes. We've, if you can hire somebody to do something for you who's much better at it, like, like editing, that's the big thing nowadays with podcasts is it takes me a so, so much time to edit something. I could hire somebody for next to nothing and it would, when I say next to nothing, it's all relative and they can do my job better than me. And I think a patient advocate is so good for that because you don't know what to do. And here you can hire a professional that can vet out different people and put you on the best path to getting help, to getting better, whatever it is. Well, great. Thanks very much. I have one last question. And you tell me if it's not a fair question. But Okay, go ahead. Do you have any thoughts or advice for people in terms of when they should come see you? I'll give you a personal example. I have had a shoulder, my right shoulder has been bothering me for, it's probably going on a year now. And whereas it was episodic, now it's become chronic. And pretty much uh, I live with it every day. Sometimes it keeps me awake. It, it I think I know the answer to this question, but since I have a professional on here, is it time for me to go see a doctor about this? And, and are you the right kind of doctor or should I go see, say, uh, an orthopedic surgeon first? You know the right answer, which is definitely yes. But to answer your question is you should go get treatment for, I'm a musculoskeletal guy. When you're having pain, you should get treatment when it becomes something that is impeding your life. Everybody has a little bit of aches and pains here and there. What should now, different states have different rules. Now in New York, we are a direct access state. You can go see a physical therapist without a script from a doctor. I forget what Maryland was, but even though having worked there and lived there, the truth is, is should you go see an orthopedic surgeon? I don't know. Most of the time, the surgeon's going to say, go see physical therapy for a month and then come back to me. The truth is, is cutting should be the last thing. 
pills should be also down the line. But usually if you go in, you know, I, I know nothing about you, about your shoulder, but here's the secret. If you do strengthening, if you do stretching and maybe some like modalities or icing, you'll make some improvements. But if it's getting to the point where like you can't sleep at night, you might have something really wrong. Try PT for four weeks and see what happens because you'd be surprised how much better it can get. Or you might be able to live with it because getting a full-blown rotator cuff surgery or labral surgery, you're looking at not using your arm for the next six weeks and really not being able to use it for anything for about a good two to three months. And some people, that's just not worth it. That's what I'm trying to avoid. So I think this has been very helpful. I, I'm, I'll make an appointment with a physical therapist tomorrow and start uh, start my journey. <laughs> Good. I think that's I think that's a great job. Thank you so much for having me on your sh- your show. This is really cool. You know, I, I have my own podcast. Just to plug it real quick, it's yes. it's called Booze Your Daddy. B O O apostrophe S Y O U R D D Y. Where it's more like booze, like when you call me and a friend, we co-host it. But it's a thirty minute podcast where we just kind of tell funny stories back and forth. And I don't ever reveal patient information, but I'm that guy who always puts my foot in my mouth and does different things. And laughter is important in this world. So I started something just to have fun because I have my own experiences in this world, and we play a little trivia and whatnot. But if anybody's looking for thirty minutes of just laughing and listening to people talk about something, I highly recommend it. Terrific. Well, I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. And I appreciate your joining us. And, and please don't go out in the street in that shirt because I worry about your safety. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. Take awesome, care. Man. Bye now. Beginning next week, we're going to pull apart the code for trust and credibility and look at each one of the letters in turn over the course of four weeks take a more in-depth look and understand what we need to do in order to be caring and empathetic, open and honest, dedicated and committed, and expert and competent. In next week's episode, we'll start with the C. And here's a rare public service announcement. If you're going to vote for Joe Biden, please request your mail-in ballot right away. We've got to start early and help make sure that this election is decided quickly after election day. And if you're going to vote for Donald Trump, please ignore what I just said. You can send questions to WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo from jimmyimgroup.com for the original music and to C.C. Snetzinger for the original podcast art. Until next time, always be positive. possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.